You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. Good morning. Today's scripture is 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 5, 18 through 28, and what else? 39 through 40. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scripture, for your truth, for your unfailing love. I pray that you will continue to expand our capacity to understand how loved we are and to receive your love. I pray that the words that Andrew shares with us this morning, that our ears will be open and our hearts will be open to receive what you've put on his heart to share with us. Um, I thank you that we can come here in fellowship and learn more about your love for us, learn more about your sovereignty. I pray for those who aren't here today, Lord. I pray that you will strengthen and encourage them physically, emotionally, whatever the reason that kept them at home, I pray that you will comfort them. For those who are sick, Lord, um, 
It's the desire of our human hearts for us to see our loved ones healed. But we know you are good and you are sovereign and everything is for your glory. And help us to always lean into these truths. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you, Pamela. Good morning to everybody. So I wanted to start this morning with a question. And that question is this. Have you ever had to childproof your home? Anybody ever have to childproof your home? Maybe you had to do it for your own kids. Maybe some other people's kids were coming over and you had to childproof your home. There's this protocol that we go through when we childproof a home, isn't there? First, you have to identify those things that are potentially harmful. Then you either put those things away. That's one thing you could do. Put them behind locked doors, a locked cabinet, something like that. Or... You might, if that's not appropriate, then you might, and if the child's old enough, instruct them on how to properly engage with whatever that potentially harmful thing is. So like if you have like a dog, can dogs be potentially harmful? Yeah, they can be potentially harmful, but there also can be really fun to be around and kids love dogs, that kind of thing. So if the child's old enough, you might consider instead of locking the dog away, you might instruct the child on how to engage with this dog. Now, I mention all of this because, and the way that I'm picturing this message is, we're entering into a house called the house of spiritual gifts. And we're the kids in this analogy, okay? And there's a lot of shiny, exciting things in this house, but those same things can sometimes be potentially harmful. And so I want to ask the Apostle Paul to educate us or inform us regarding the dangers that are in this house, but also how to engage with the things in this house in a way that is proper. Now, I especially want him to do this with the very controversial gift called the gift of tongues. And that's like the topic that we're talking about this morning. Now, those of you who have been here, you know that we've been walking our, making our way through the book of Acts, and we've hit the pause button just for a little bit to talk about the works of the Spirit, because a lot of that is going on in the book of Acts, and some, sometimes it's just good to like take a step back and say, like, okay, what exactly is going on here? I'm unfamiliar with these ideas. So that's part of what we're doing. So this is the last sermon that we're taking away to do that. Then, Lord willing, we'll be back in the book of Acts next week. Now, last time we were together... We entered into this house of spiritual gifts and we visited three rooms. One room we visited was labeled 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And there, Paul helped us put together a working definition of what spiritual gifts are. And this is what we said. We said that spiritual gifts are special enablements. Sometimes they include roles within the local church given to every Christian by the Holy Spirit, and empowered by the Holy Spirit for two purposes, to glorify Christ and to build up the body of Christ. So Paul led us in on that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Then he took us to another room, labeled 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and then he told us this, look, if you speak in the tongues of men and the tongues of angels, but you don't love people in the process of doing that, then you're using this spiritual gift in a way that it wasn't intended. When the Spirit comes in and equips you to do something, what's going to result is love. Love for God, 
love for others, the exaltation of Jesus for the benefit of others, to build up the body of Christ. So if you're using a spiritual gift in a way that is contrary to the character of the gift giver, that's like a no-go. Like, so he's, he let us know that in that room. So we're, you know, we're taking notes. Then we went to another room, the third room, called 1 Corinthians 14. And then we just poked our head in last time. But we were there long enough for Paul to say, hey, look, when the church is assembled, I prefer prophecy over speaking in tongues. And we talked a little bit about what that was. And he has a preference, a strong preference. And maybe that's not even the right word. But intelligibility over unintelligibility. And then we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So today we're going to go back into this third room, 1 Corinthians 14, and we're going to ask two questions and try to answer these two questions. The first question that we're going to try to answer is, okay, what can we learn about tongues from this room in 1 Corinthians 14? That's the first question. We're going to spend the majority of our time on this first question. I let you know that now because two-thirds of the way through the sermon and you're like, man, we're still on the first point. Like, what? Is, you know, <clears throat> that might make you nervous. But we're going to spend the majority of our time there. Then we're going to ask a second question. And the second question is, is the gift of tongues for today? And there's lots of opinions about this. And I fully expect to offend every single person in the room. <laughs> uh, anyway, but we'll, 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 kind of, we'll kind of walk through this together. And I'm not the final word on this, and I think you already know that. But let's think about this first question. What can we learn about tongues in 1 Corinthians 14? To answer that question, we have to try to answer a couple other questions. One of them is very basic. What are tongues in 1 Corinthians 14? Are they the same as Acts chapter 2? Is there a difference? Is there an overlap? How should we think about these things? So for that information, let's look at 1 Corinthians 14.2. There we read, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So we learn a couple of things about tongues from this verse. One, it's God word speak. What does he say? For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. So, this kind of makes sense with what we saw in Acts chapter 2. The content of what they were speaking was praises to God regarding the mighty works of God. If you look in Acts 10.45, there we saw tongues coupled with the idea of extolling God. If you look a little bit later in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 14 through 17, there Paul connects speaking in tongues with prayer, singing praises, and giving thanks to God. So unlike teaching or prophecy where those are words that are going out to people, this is Godward speech. We're speaking words to God. So I would expect, if I went somewhere and somebody spoke in a tongue, let's say, theoretically, and then somebody gave an interpretation, then I would expect that interpretation to sound something like Godward speech. Praise to God, thanksgiving to God. Maybe there's some exceptions, but it seems like from this verse, it's mainly Godward speech. Another thing we can say about tongues from this verse is that is unintelligible speak, speech. What does it say? No one understands him. Now, that's interesting because in Acts chapter 2, tongues are 
known human languages, but unknown to the ones speaking them, but understood by others present. These pilgrims that have come into Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. But then Paul here, and really in all of 1 Corinthians 14, it seems like he's saying, hey, look, when tongues are not interpreted, no one understands what they are. So, huh, that raises a question, doesn't it? Are tongues always known human languages? And if so, why does he say no one will understand them, especially in this context of the city of Corinth, a very diverse cosmopolitan city where there's a lot of diverse languages present? And then why would it require a supernatural gift of the Spirit known as interpretation to be able to understand it versus just like a gifted linguist? These are questions. Or why does Paul, for example, in verses 10 through 11, use the example of foreign but known human languages as an analogy to explain what uninterpreted tongues are if that's what uninterpreted tongues are, that, you know, they are foreign but unknown languages. In other words, like, it seems a little strange. Normally, when we use analogies, we, use, we don't use something that is identical to the thing that we're trying to clarify. So it's like when we make a definition of something, when you use, you, you know, you're not supposed to use, if you're defining a word, you're not supposed to use that word in the definition. So th these are just questions. And the question that I have is, okay, is it possible that tongues are not always known human languages? I mean, could they be? I mean, I think they're always languages. I want to I make that clear. I don't think that it's just meaningless babble. I, it's languages, but could it be possible that they're angelic, let's say? Paul introduces that category in 1 Corinthians 13.1. That's in the context of rhetoric, so that's a little bit difficult. Could it be that these are known human languages that are encoded somehow, that need to be decoded? D.A. Carson argues this. It's like, these are just questions. So, well, maybe we'll just leave it at that. Okay, they're, you know, unintelligible speech. Godward speech, unintelligible speech. Another thing that we learn from this verse is that they're spirit-empowered speech. So what does it say? He utters mysteries in the spirit. So the one speaking in tongues he, it's the things that he's saying are unknowable until they're interpreted. And they're also animated by the Holy Spirit. Now, when I say this, I don't mean that they are necessarily ecstatic speech or completely outside the control of the person speaking them because how else could God, Paul, offer regulations later? Like, we don't regulate things that can't be controlled. So it's, it seems like, okay, so it's, it's at least in part, although it's something divine, so that's a mystery in and of itself. It's like when we operate as Christians, there's kind of two things happening. We're, we're acknowledging everything that I'm doing that brings glory to God comes from the Spirit. Nevertheless, I'm participating in what, what's being done. So it's not completely outside of my, I'm involved in the process. That's why Paul can regulate it. So it's not just un, you know, it's not just, I'm sure that if we asked, if we pulled the Corinthians that he's talking to, they would say like, we can't help it. You know, it's just what happens. It comes upon us. And Paul's like, well, no, actually I have these regulations for you. So that, th these are some things that we can say about tongues from this verse. 
Tongues are spirit-empowered languages unknown to the speaker and to others unless they're interpreted, either because they're angelic or because they're encoded somehow. Others say, well, they just need to be translated. That's the part where I'm just not... Those who say that these are always known human languages, they have answers to all my questions. I want you to know that. It's just that I'm not sure if I'm completely satisfied with it yet. So, 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 and I think there's an application to this as well. So you're, I wasn't going to say this, but. So I read 750 pages. And at the end of 750 pages, I am still unsure. And it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Like, I still know Jesus. So, like, you know what I mean? It's okay. You can, we're not going to have all of our answers, you know, the questions answered. And that's okay. We don't have to agree on everything. That's also okay. So this, but this is where I am, you know, right now with regard to this. It seems like it's always Godward speech about prayer, praise, thanksgiving to God. So that's the best answer I can give right now regarding the question, okay, what are tongues in 1 Corinthians 14? That's part of my answer to, okay, what can we learn about tongues in this room in 1 Corinthians 14? But then there's another question when we think about 1 Corinthians 14, and that is, why, Paul, are you against uninterpreted tongue in the church when it is gathered? And he gives actually two answers to that. One we're familiar with because we've talked about it before. He prefers intelligibility over unintelligibility. When the church gathers, the gifts are supposed to be employed in such a way so that the body is built up. But uninterpreted tongues don't build up the body because nobody knows what's being said. They're unintelligible. So Paul says this in the latter part of verse 5. He goes on to say, The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. And then a little bit later in verse 9. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Uninterpreted tongues do not edify the body because nobody knows what's being said. That's his main point there. But then he gives another answer. And this one is a little bit more, it's a little bit more complicated and a little bit interesting. A lot of controversy of how to understand it, actually. So the second answer that he gives is tongues are assigned to unbelievers. So in other words, unintelligible speech is meant to be assigned to unbelievers actually about God's judgment and not to edify believers when they're gathered. Let me explain what I mean. So if you look in verse 21, Paul says this, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So this is a loose quotation from Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12. Then he goes on to say this, verse 22. Thus, this is Paul speaking now, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together, and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say, you are out of your minds? So this argument that Paul's making, it was hard for me to understand exactly. What is he exactly saying? I'm going to try my best to give you what I think he's saying. So this quotation from Isaiah chapter 28, these words are given in the context 
of God's judgment coming upon unbelieving Jews or Israelites in the form of an invading Assyrian army. Did ancient Assyrians speak Hebrew? No. So they speak in a different language, and that's in fulfillment of a covenant curse from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 49. So Paul then, he looks at that situation, and then he derives a principle from it. And the principle is this. When you hear God speaking to unbelievers in languages that they do not know, it is a sign to them that God's judgment has already fallen upon them. And they're not going to repent. That's what it's a sign of. And so then what Paul does in applying it to this situation, he's like, okay, therefore, if tongues, uninterpreted tongues or unintelligible speech is being spoken, and it's a sign that God's judgment has already fallen on unbelievers, then it would be inappropriate to bring in uninterpreted tongues in a situation like a church gathering where the main purpose of the gathering is to edify believers and you're hoping that if any unbelievers stumble in, that they turn to God, not away from God, because they think all y'all are crazy. So that, I think that's what he's arguing. And so on the basis of these two answers that Paul gives, he gives some regulations in verse 27 and 28 that, that Pamela read. He says, limit the number of tongue speakers. Don't speak in tongues unless someone is there to interpret the tongue. So it, come, it goes from unintelligible speech to intelligible speech. And then he says, take turns. Don't do it all at the same time. So these are the limits that Paul puts around speaking in tongues in the public assembly. What about in private? Now, there are reasons to believe that Paul both engaged in and encouraged others to pray in tongues in private, right? If you have the gift of tongues, and not all Christians have the gift of tongues. We, we learned that in 1 Corinthians, in the latter part of 1 Corinthians 12. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 14, 4 and 5, Paul says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues. Okay. But even more to prophesy. Like, how are we supposed to understand this? Now, when I, for a long time, I read this first part, like, almost like pejoratively, like, like in a negative way. Like, the one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up. Yeah, they're all about themselves. But then we would have Paul saying, like, yeah, I wish all of you guys were about yourselves. And I'm like, huh, that doesn't seem to work. But then in Jude, Jude 20 and 21, he says he encourages them to build themselves up. He uses the same kind of language. So it's like, okay, how are we supposed to understand this? Paul's saying like, okay, yeah, in private, that, yeah, it's, I encourage you to do that because if you have that gift, it will build you up. That's, I think Paul's saying that. But when the church is gathered, what we need to be focusing on is building others up. That's what I think he's talking about. So what about, and here's another example. 1 Corinthians 14, 18 and 19. There Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. 
Okay, all right, Paul. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind, and I'm taking that to mean intelligibly, in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So evidently, Paul speaks in tongues a lot, but he doesn't want to do it in church. So then the question becomes, well, where is he speaking all these tongues if he doesn't want to do it in public? In private. I mean, you know, I'm sorry if this is difficult for some people, but I mean, I just, it's like, okay, yeah, that's, it seems to be like what Paul is engaging in. Now, one of the difficulties in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is that we come to 1 Corinthians 14, and we're kind of doing it today. I hope, hopefully we're reading it in context. That was my aim. But oftentimes, it's normally just called for verses to find proof texts to be able to like advance whatever position that you have on these types of issues. But to understand what Paul is talking about regarding tongues in 1 Corinthians 14, we have to understand that Paul is not... He's not really giving a systematic theology on tongues. He's actually addressing a problem. And the problem isn't that with tongues in general. The problem isn't speaking in tongues in private. The problem is, is that people in the Corinthian church were immature. They were divisive. They thought they were super spiritual. And so they wanted to exercise their spiritual gifts in a way that said like, hey man, look at me, look how spiritual I am, without any regard as to whether or not it was loving to the people around them or edifying them. So their problem was a love problem. They were using a spiritual gift in a way that was out of sync with the character of the gift giver. Because when the spirit comes in, he produces love. Love for God love for others in a way that exalts King Jesus and edifies the church. That's the, main, that's the main point that he's trying to get at. Like tongues is just like the reference point in some ways. That's my best attempt at answering the question, okay, what can we learn about tongues in 1 Corinthians 14? But we have another question that we're trying to answer too. Is the gift of tongues for today? Now, I want to say up front that different Christians have different answers to this question. And I think it would be a good idea to just drop some of the caricatures. Like the choices aren't, oh man, <laughs> I don't be offended by this, I hope, either. But the choices aren't T.D. Jakes, John MacArthur. Those are your only choices. Like, which one of those do you want to be? Like, those aren't the only choices. And you, Like, there are Bible-believing, spirit-loving Christians on both sides of this equation. Like, J.I. Packer doesn't agree with John Piper on this. Are you going to tell me that J.I. Packer doesn't love God or follow the Spirit? Please don't do that to me. Like, are you going to tell me that John Piper doesn't love the Bible? <laughs> That's insane. You know, so, okay, so let's just, 
drop, yes, there are people who fit the stereotypes. There are. But let's, for the sake of unity, let's just drop the name calling and the caricatures and let's just talk about, okay, no, we still have this question. And if Paul were here, he would, by the, say, by the way, say to us in our current situation, he said, you may have to, even if you have the best arguments for and against the continuation of the gifts and you do not have love, it's meaningless. It gains nothing. And you ought to repent. And that's what he would say to us. But nevertheless, there's still the question. Is the gift of tongues for today? There are some who say no, and there are some who say yes. Those who say no are called cessationists because they think that tongues have ceased. They've stopped. They have biblical arguments. They have arguments from church history. And they have arguments with reference to modern abuses. Okay? So let's talk about the biblical arguments that they have. So the biblical argument would go something like this. And there's whole books written on it. So, I'm a, so if somebody was here who wrote that, you know, book or, you know, they're going to be offended by this little, 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 you know, little thumbnail sketch I'm giving regarding their argument. But it goes something like this, right? Signs and wonders and miraculous spiritual gifts were given in the first century. They had a particular role in the history of salvation to accredit the ministry, to like give validation to the ministry and message of the apostles and their close associates. And they're, they definitely have verses to support this. So listen to Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 3. The subject here is salvation in Christ. And the author of Hebrews says this regarding salvation in Christ that it was, quote, declared at first by the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard, the apostles and their close associates, while God also bore witness by, okay, so he's, I'm giving you the message of the gospel, and now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something else with the message of the gospel, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of this Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. Same kind of message is found in Acts dotted throughout there. You see that in Acts 5, 12, Acts 6, 8, Acts 14, 3. Also in Romans, Romans 15, 18, and 19. Different places you see these kinds of ideas. But that's not where the argument obviously stops for them. They would say, and that was vital, vital for the first century church until um, the church was built on a foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Ephesians 2.20. But once that foundation was laid, and they would include in that foundation the completion of the New Testament, once you have the completion of the New Testament, you no longer have any need for miraculous gifts. That's the argument. Now, they would support that argument <clears throat> by looking at church history and noting there really aren't a lot of examples of people speaking in tongues in church history until about the early 1900s at the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. So that would be one thing they would add to that. Then they would add an argument from modern abuses. And they would say, when we look at modern examples of how this is practiced in different churches, Many times, not, maybe not all the time, but many times 
it bears very little resemblance to 1 Corinthians 14. So they have that concern. On top of that, linguists have studied tapes regarding people speaking in tongues. And it doesn't seem like they ever come together to be any kind of identifiable language or even a pattern of a language. And so, they, so you ask them, do you guys think that tongues are still for today? They're like, no, I don't think so. And so, some of them are very mean about it, and some of them are very charitable about it. Thomas Schreiner is very charitable about it. He wrote an amazing book called The Spiritual Gifts that I would recommend to you. So there's, there are those who say no. There are those who say yes. They're called continuationists. Can you think of why? <laughs> like the, because they think the tongues continue. Now, here's the thing. A lot of them agree with the sensationists with regard to church history and with regard to modern abuses. They would say, yeah, you're right. There's not a lot of examples in church history of people speaking in tongues, although there are some, they would add, although there are some, and maybe it's underreported, and they have their arguments about why that would be, and then they add on to that, and we are also grieved when we see Modern abuses of gifts that elevate the person exercising them and don't exalt Jesus Christ or edify the church. We are also grieved about that. But then they would, then they would point to the Bible and they would say, but we really don't see a passage in Scripture that tells us explicitly that this has ended. And in fact, we... It doesn't seem like we should expect that, especially when Paul tells us to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts and not to forbid them. And the one passage that seems to say that they have ceased, you could argue that that is the greatest scriptural evidence for their continuation. Now I'm talking about 1 Corinthians 13. And there beginning in verse 8 we read, this is Paul. Love never ends. He's talking about the priority of love over the spiritual gifts. That's the context. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, this is like the key phrase in this, the partial will pass away. And skipping down to verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So everything revolves around this phrase, when the perfect comes. What's that? Is it the second coming of Jesus? Or is it the completion of the New Testament? So I'm going I'm to read verse 12 again. And then you tell me what you think. For now we see in a mirror dimly. The partial will pass away. But then, when the perfect comes... Face to face. All right. Now I know in part, the partial will pass away. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 
So the continuationist is going to say, that certainly sounds like the second coming of Christ to me. And then if you look in 1 Corinthians 1.9, or 1.7 I think it is, that's corroborated. It's like these things cease in the appearing of the Lord. So when we enter this house called spiritual gifts, and we see on a table, gift of tongues. What's that? We pick it up and we say, what do we use this for? There's going to be Christians in the house, loving Christians, beautiful Christians. I used to agree with this wholeheartedly and argue for it vehemently. There's going to be Christians who said, oh, no. No, we took the batteries out of that because it was getting crazy up in this house. It was getting crazy up. We took the We No, 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 no. We do not use that. And there's going to be other Christians who are like, no, 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 no. No, we use it and we do whatever we want with it. You know, like, and sorry, that's a little bit of a caricature. Um, but what I'm saying is, if I'm right, and this is definitely open to criticism, if I'm right about 1 Corinthians 14, then what Paul would do in that situation is he would come along and say, okay, okay, all right, guys, you know, stop fighting each other. Like, if God has given you the spiritual gift, then use it. Don't forbid speaking in tongues, 1 Corinthians 14, 39. But, I think he would add, but... Use it responsibly as I outlined in 1 Corinthians 14 and above all else. If you hear anything today, take this with you. Above all else, if the Spirit gives you a gift, what it's going to look like in practice is love. Loving God, loving others, exalting Jesus Christ, our King. That's how we're built up. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your love. We're thankful for your patience as we try to figure out what you have said. Lord, we want to know what you've said. Lord, if there's a gift that you mean to give us, and we've said no maybe because we're scared, Lord, help us to rethink that. Lord, if there's experiences right now that we're trying to defend but actually aren't from you, Lord, I pray that you would grant repentance. But Lord, above all else, Lord, would you come and fill us with your Holy Spirit to the point of overflowing so that we might love one another. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.